0: Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you. And we ask that you would search us and know us. God, that you would see if there's anything within us that is offensive or not of you. God, in those moments and in those broken places, help lead us into the way of everlasting and remind us that that way of everlasting is a way of love, a way of grace, a way of mercy. Help us to believe your almighty and incredible love that you bestow upon us. God, send your spirit, open our hearts and our minds, be receptive to your word, be with me to teach it clearly and lovingly and in a way that brings you glory and honor and brings us to a closer knowledge of you. We thank you for this time. We entrust it to you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so out of curiosity, how many of you, by show of hands, have an alarm system at home? Anyone? Right? And I don't, I don't mean like the alarm that wakes you up you know, in the morning, like the one that protects you from intruders. Okay? So a good, a good portion of us have the alarm system at home. Uh, for us, recently ours has kind of been on the fritz. I feel like the last three or four times we've left the house, we've had a false alarm, like it's gone off while we haven't been there and don't really know the cause of it. And, and when you're not there and the alarm goes off, at worst, it's an annoyance, because we get this phone call from the alarm company that's like, hey, we detected an alarm signal at your residence. And you, you kind of have to make this awkward decision where you're like, do I need to send the cops? It's probably nothing, but it could be something. Like, what do I do? Yeah, go ahead and send them. No, don't send them. And so it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's a little annoying when the, when the false alarms occur when you're not there. What's really disturbing is when you experience a false alarm and you are there, right? Because those things are loud, right? And then when that happens, it's not, you know, annoying. It's, it's terrifying because it catches you off guard. We were reminded of this not too long ago. It was about, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, I guess. And it was in the middle of the night. And we were all sleeping. And probably around 3.30 a.m., all of a sudden, you know... <laughs> That's what we heard, right? And it just jumped, right? Everybody, like, just immediate panic. And so, my instinct was I got up, I grabbed the bat that is next to my bedside, right? Because I have it there for this very occurrence. And I placed that bat there with this vision that in the event that an intruder comes into my home, I will valiantly defend my family. And I had this picture in my mind of what that defense would look like and how apt and able I would be in that moment. And then when you're woken up like that at 3.30 in the morning, you realize how far off your vision is from reality. Because I grab that bat and I'm half asleep wandering around the house like, okay, I really hope nobody's in here because I'm going to lose this fight if it happens. But the point is, I woke up ready to fight. Like that was my instinct, right? And it's kind of a reminder of what those impulses are when we're afraid and how we almost instinctively Respond, And I, and I kind of wanted to remind us of that this morning, but I didn't want to just talk about it. I kind of wanted to show you. I wanted us to see what it's like when we're scared and when we get afraid, because this is kind of fun. So I brought a short little compilation video of people being scared. Let's watch this real quick, and observe their reactions. <laughs> hey) <laughs> Are you going trick-or-treating? No, probably <laughs> oh, I love that last one. Matt had no idea he was going to be a part of that video. I didn't have his permission. But I had his wife's permission, and that's really all you need. After all, where did I get the video? But, Here's the point to that video. You saw two common reactions, correct? Fight or flight. Uh, This is what the human impulse is when we're afraid. For some of those people, as soon as they were terrified, they got angry, they come up with somebody, they start hitting them. For other people, it's immediate retreat, and you run away from the situation. This is what we do when we're fearful. And it's not just when we're literally afraid. Uh, It's kind of what we do in all situations that create any level of fear. And that's why I'm sharing it with you, right? So you could be fearful of fill in the blank. You could be fearful of how things are going to work, Uh, things that are happening at home with your family, fearful of things that are going on in friendships, relationships, society, and your impulse is going to be fight or flight. And let me give you like a concrete example that many of us can probably refer to or or relate to. The pandemic begins, it disrupts so many different areas of life, and uh, one of those areas that it really began to disrupt was education. And so there was this pervasive question, well, what is this going to do to our children? So you get to the fall of this past year, and schools come up with all these plans, and the fear that so many parents and so many other people involved with education had was, is this good for my kids? Is this good for children? And depending on your reaction, some parents looked at those situations and said, no, I'm too afraid of what this means, and they left, like literally left their schools and went somewhere else. Others with that fear looked at it, decided to stay, but they fought. Right? There, there were concerns, there were arguments, there were debates with teachers, administrators, school boards. Right? We saw it across the country. This is what we do when we're afraid. We, we fight or we flight. And I share that with you this morning because today we're talking about a very difficult conversation. Sexual immorality. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is because it scares us. And so more often than not, what you see take place in society and within churches is that because we're afraid, our responses to this conversation is usually fight or flight, because it's rooted in fear. And today, we can't have that, right? we don't want to have that, because the reality is, is that the church is not called to live in fear, it's called to live in love. But because we've been caught in this perpetual cycle of fight and flight, what happens is it creates uh, walls rather than bridges, chasms rather than closeness. And what we need to do is let that fear dissipate and be removed so that we can have these conversations rooted in love because that's what we are called to do. And there's only one way to really do that, is to be reminded of the love of Jesus. right? Because in 1 John it tells us God is love. And those who live in love live in God. And as you continue to read that section, what does it tell us? His perfect love drives out fear. And so my hope today is that we can navigate a difficult conversation and, and not respond with a fight or flight mentality, but one that clings to the perfect love of God. What I love about that video is that once people looked beyond their circumstances, looked beyond the fear, of what did you see? You saw laughter, you saw joy, because people began to connect with one another. They built bridges, they built trust. That's what we want to accomplish this morning. But the only way we do that is to anchor it in the perfect love of Christ and allow it to drive out the fear that can so easily entrench us. And so it won't be easy, but I trust that we can do it. And so grab your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to get back on track. You you saw it kind of at least referenced there in the children's message that we got out of order uh, intentionally a couple of weeks ago when I was here. Which by the way, special thanks to Kevin Lentz for filling in for me last week uh, while in, while I was away. Did a phenomenal job. Uh, but it was a it was a break from our series in the book of Revelation. And the week before when I was here, we had jumped ahead to Sardis. And the reason we did that is because I knew that when we discussed Thyatira. Uh, it was going to lead us to this difficult conversation related to sexual immorality. In that week that we were scheduled to do it was Graduate Sunday. Just didn't feel like it made a lot of sense. It was between a uh, couple of days out for me, so I just I really wanted to shift it around. So we'll focus on Thyatira for this week and next week, and then we'll get back to the regular progression and Revelation chapter three. Uh, Before we dive into this today, let me give you just a little bit of context of the city of Thyatira. It's different than the other cities in the sense that it's not as prominent, it's not as, uh, I guess, well-known, so to speak, but it does have a level of influence and importance primarily driven through its industries of commerce, right? So you had all these different things that were taking place in Thyatira. You had uh, all these different industries related to wool and linen and leather and tanning and tint making and bronze work and all these different Things in these industries that existed in Thyatira. And as a result, uh, what was common in that particular time is that you would have these trade guilds that would develop and emerge. And each industry had its own little kind of labor union that really helped describe and define and shape the culture, the personalities, the economics, all the different things that you saw in that capacity or in that city. And as a result, these different guilds ended up having their own specific patron deities that they would follow. And, and their own festivals that would often lead to sexual immorality and revelry, right? And that was commonplace not just for Thyatira, but for all of the Roman world. It's just why we saw it addressed earlier with Pergamum as well. This was an, a constant issue, and I think we all know it's not just confined to the Roman world. It's, it's been a human issue for quite some time. And so you, you have this going on in Thyatira, and uh, that kind of speaks to uh, the level of what we're going to see as being a point of concern for the church in Revelation chapter 2. So let's read through verses 18 through 25, and then we'll dive into it to the best of our ability. It says in verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. But nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Okay, really uplifting uh, passage there. And I'll just go ahead and set a disclaimer. We're going to go long today, so you're welcome. I'm back. Uh, but we have a lot to cover. And, and I wrestled with the best way to do it because I, I don't want to rush this. It's important. Um, It's been mentioned before. It's throughout scripture. And so I don't want to rush it, but there's no way we can be exhaustive today. We don't have that kind of time. So I want us to try to find that balance, to not be rushed, be thorough. Um, But in order to do that, what we're going to have to do is kind of focus our conversation. So I I don't have the luxury on a day like today to work through this word for word, line by line, like we often do. From time to time. So what I want to do is try to create a little bit of an overview of what we just read and then offer a summarization that allows us to kind of focus this conversation from a contemporary viewpoint that we can apply to our setting today. And so what you see with the letter to the Church of Thyatira is that it's very similar to all the other letters that we've seen. It follows the same formula. Here are the recipients. Thyatira. Here's the person that is speaking to you. You have a description of Jesus. and this one, it's bla- eyes of blazing fire and feet as burnished as bronze. And it reminds us of Revelation chapter one. There's a, re- a, a, a reference to the, the divine knowledge. I know these deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and all these different things. But here's what I hold against you, right? And the concern, the verdict against Thyatira is, is pretty elaborate. It's pretty extensive. And at the center of this concern is this reference to a woman named Jezebel, or referred to as Jezebel. This is similar to what we saw with the letter to Pergamum. It's an Old Testament reference. That wasn't the actual name. This is a way for Jesus to convey a message. In Pergamum, the reference was to Balaam. And we went back and we did some Old Testament review of who Balaam was. You can do the same thing with Jezebel. Go back and read 1 Kings 16, I think, through at least 21. And what you'll find is the story that Jezebel is the wife of Ahab, uh, King Ahab. And essentially is viewed in, in terms of the Bible to being one of the main reasons to lead Ahab into all these evil works. Uh, she was against the prophets of Yahweh. She supported the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, she, she tried to kill Elijah. Her death was gruesome. I mean, it's, it's all these terrible things. And there's this kind of uh, depiction in 1 Kings 21 that says how terrible King Ahab was and how all these things were awful. And then there's this phrase that says, and he was urged to do these things by his wife Jezebel. All right. so this is an an unflattering name and reference in the correlation is that it seems to insinuate that when you look through the Old Testament that Jezebel had misled Ahab, had deceived Ahab into these deeds. And that's the connection here, right? That apparently what we see in Thyatira is that there is a woman who has a a position of influence within the church, referring to herself as a prophet and is misleading the church with her teachings. And, And it is a deception, Right? And that, that misleading means to wander from the truth. And where is that misleading taking the church but into sexual immorality and idolatry? Right? Food sacrificed to idols, kind of the same thing that you saw referenced with Pergamum. And, and yet what you also find is a very thorough um, depiction of the frustration and the concern and the pending judgment that awaits in this situation. Right? The, the real concern was not just the acts of sexual immorality and idolatry, but the refusal of repentance. Right? that Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, but she hasn't, so she's going to be cast on this bed of suffering. All those who commit adultery with her, which is a figure of reference, any of those that follow and agree with her teaching, her children, I'm going to strike dead. Another reference to those who are following her. Right? And then everyone will know, I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. And then there's that word of urging at the end, right? But to those who haven't held on to this teaching, to these so-called deep secrets of Satan, right? I'm not gonna impose any other burden on you. Just continue to hold on as you did at first to the things you've already heard. It's another reminder that so much of the themes of these letters is loyalty, hold on to Jesus, right? And so so there's a lot. And we could dive into all these different elements of, of that passage, but we don't have time. Let me offer the summary that to me draws it into a contemporary context is that essentially you had this position of authority, this new teaching that was emerging within the church and, and in the surrounding society that was leading people astray into sexual immorality and idolatry. And there were three different responses to it within the church. There were those who followed it, those who tolerated it, and those who resisted it. Right? And the main concern was not the deeds themselves, but the lack of repentance. So it's a very difficult text. And I think the correlations for us um, are somewhat obvious, but I wanna take some time to, to really say, okay, here's how we take that situation and that word of warning that we find here in Revelation and apply it to our context today. But when we do, we have to make sure that we do this out of love and not out of fear, right? That we do so mindful of the perfect love of Christ. And so the way I only know how to do that is because when you have conversations about sexual immorality and things like that, it's scary, right? It it conjures up those feelings of fight and flight. And so what I think can help is if we stop for a moment and really just try to understand what's going on, right? Kind of understand how we can be misled down these paths. a, A correlation that I thought of when thinking about this was a couple of weeks ago, I was at Disney And on several of those rides, I don't know if you guys have been there, but like Disney just messes with your mind. Like that's all they really do at this point. I mean, we're going to mess you up and make you think you're going through something you're really not going through. And it can be terrifying at points. And so my impulse in those moments is to go, what's really going on here? And like I like look around, I'm like how are they doing this? Right. And once I can diagnose the situation, like that fear like goes away. I'm like, oh, okay, this is what's happening. We saw the same thing in the video. Right? In the video, people initially are scared. They see the circumstances, but then their mind kicks in. and they go, wait, wait, wait. Actually, I know that person. It's my wife. She's just scaring me again, right? And, and, and that gives way towards love. And, and that's what I want to do, right? Try to understand, look beyond the circumstances, understand what's going on, how these things can be misleading so that we can see people rather than just the fear. And so to do that, I think we first need to understand some important context as to what creates this fear. And the first thing I would offer to you is that the Bible creates fear. On this issue. It does for me, right? Because when you begin to see all the teachings and all the passages that speak to sexual immorality, they are numerous, right? And they're from beginning to end, and there's a lot of different examples of them. When you read things like Ephesians 5 that says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you, for those people have no place in the kingdom of God. Now, granted, there's a lot of other things listed. I'm just paraphrasing for the sake of time. That's a scary verse. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians Five talks about don't even associate with the sexually immoral. Don't judge those outside the church, but judge them inside the church and expel the immoral brother among you. 1 Corinthians six, flee from sexual immorality. Like I could go on and on and on. For goodness sakes, did we read Revelation? Like I'm gonna cast her on a bed of suffering. I'm gonna strike her children. That's scary. And so we read these verses and it's terrifying. And so our impulse is fight or flight. We either wanna argue with that and somehow discredit it, or we just want to avoid it altogether, or maybe even avoid church altogether, because that's where we know these things are going to be read. It's scary, right? And so you have that going on, but then you also have culture, and we live in an incredibly hyper-sexualized culture. Like, our culture is obsessed with sex, and I, I can't say definitively how that compares to other societies throughout the generations. I don't know if it's more obsessed, or less. I don't know if it matters, but it is obsessed. And what that means is is that the images and the language and the narratives about sex are happening all around us all the time. And we live in a culture that has a continuing, evolving, and developing ethics surrounding sex. And when that happens, ethics about sex change. And that creates fear. Because when those things change, all of a sudden you have competing ethics within the culture. right? And some people say, well, this is what I think about sex and sexuality, and this is what I think about sex and sexuality, and that creates fight and flight and tension. Potential for discrimination, potential for ostracism, potential for all sorts of animosity and hostility, fears of what our kids are going to be exposed to and what they are going to be taught in terms of ethics. And so we get fearful, and so what do we do? We retreat from our society, do our best to insulate ourselves from these conversations and these images and these stories, or we fight society and try to convince them that our ethic is the right one. And so everywhere, biblically and culturally, we're trapped by these fears, and it's creating walls and chasms. We have got to break out of that fear. But it is difficult, right? Because part of what we see is that love, though, is willing to have difficult conversations, right? Love doesn't just let things be, right? The, the people that I love the most are the people in my home. You know how many difficult conversations I've had with those people? A lot of them. And in those difficult conversations, it's created fight-and-flight moments. But after the fear dissipates and we see one another, love reigns supreme and we come back together. That's what we have to do. Love has hard conversations. It doesn't avoid them. And so I'm willing to have this conversation with you all today. And we need to understand how we can be misled into sexual immorality. So let's, let's consider it. Right? What is sexual immorality? How do you define it? What does it include? That's, that's a very broad term with a lot of sweeping implications. We don't have the ability to be exhaustive today in answering that question, but I do want us to be thorough in in trying to highlight different elements that pertain to our direct experiences. Okay, so I'm gonna hit on several today. Uh, Where I wanna begin is with the subject of pornography. And the reason I wanna start there is because I think in some ways you could argue this is where Jesus begins with his ethics of sexual immorality. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and you see Jesus begin to teach on this concept of adultery, Matthew 5, 27, he says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery with her in your heart. And what he defines for us is that immorality really has nothing to do with how we engage and interact with somebody else. It all starts in our hearts, and even with how we look and view other people, right? And it's, and it's a pretty high demand, and so, we live in a world where pornography challenges what Jesus has taught us about sexual purity. And here's the misconception. Here's the lie that is often presented within culture. Um, it's pretty easy to see that it is growing in its acceptance as the internet has taken off, the accessibility, the constant saturation of it, the ex- easiness to which we can be exposed to it is all over the place. And so, here's what you begin to find. You can find a lot of folks that will begin to affirm it. came across an article in the New York Times back in 2012. Here's a quote from it. Watching pornography is not inherently harmful to men or women. It can reboot a couple's sex life, give you ideas. That's that's the idea. Hey, in moderation, this can actually help you. According to Gallup, this I believe was in 2018, when surveying men aged 18 to 49, 67% say pornography is morally acceptable. Of non-religious Americans, right, those that are not affiliated with any religious uh, belief system, 76% would say pornography is morally acceptable, All right? So that's the narrative. And it's easy when you live in a hyper-sexualized culture that says that for us to be misled by that belief, and we can see that through statistics as well. 2019, the Freedom Fight conducted a survey of more than 1,300 practicing Christian college students over 30 different campuses across the country, right? So... 30 different campuses, all college-aged men and women. The people that they surveyed were involved in campus ministry, considered their faith in Christ to be very important to them. Many of them were leaders within their ministries. That's who they talked to. And of that group, 89% of the men surveyed watched porn at least occasionally. 61% viewed it at least weekly, 24% daily. 51% would say they were addicted, but it's not just a problem with men. And that same group, Christian women, leaders in ministry, 51% watched porn at least occasionally. 70% of them had watched it or had a sexual hookup within the last 12 months, right? So, so we see that within the church, we can easily be misled, likely because the narrative is, hey, this is okay, it's acceptable, right? But I didn't have us come here today just so we could talk about statistics to let you know, hey, pornography's a problem. Newsflash. Right? The real reason is to understand the misconceptions that can lead us into it to better understand how harmful it really is. And so part of what I want to do is help us understand what's really going on in our brains when this takes place. This comes from some articles where there was an interview with an individual by the name of William M. Struthers, who's the associate professor of psychology at Wheaton College. And this was a, an article that summarizes a lot of findings that you can find on this subject matter. So I'm just going to break it down for you as crudely as I can, uh, knowing it's not my direct field of expertise. But when we look at something lustfully, an image like that, neurons fire in our brain that tell our bodies to mirror what we're seeing, which is unique to pornography. Right? You can watch a violent movie and all these other things, and you won't have those same neurons that tell you to mirror what you're seeing. But you do when it's pornographic. And so that creates arousal. That creates this tension that you then want to replicate what you see in this image. And when you move forward with whatever that sort of release is, additional hormones and responses, uh, neurological things take place in your brain that then bind you to the image that you are seeing. Now, here's why I'm telling you that. Here's why I'm going to that detail. God gave you that. Like, he gave you that neurological response for a reason because in his design, when that happens, the image you should be fixated on is your spouse, and you should physiologically then be further bound to your spouse. So the narrative in culture is that, man, if you just have one person, think about boring and dull and uneventful and all those things. No, if you actually made it pure, it would increase in love and intensity because of the way that you were designed. But we can't help ourselves, and so when we, when we go through this route of pornography, we get attached to an image, to a screen, to where now it's become so prolific that you have numerous testimonies of people that have gone through addiction to pornography who have confessed that it arrived at a place where they could only really find satisfaction in a screen, even in preference to an actual person. Right, the other challenge with this is that it releases dopamine, right, that reward system in our brains. And when you have the same uh, experience with dopamine, what your body eventually needs, those, those patterns get worn out, and you need more dopamine to get that hit. And so to get more dopamine, you have to change the experience, which means the experience needs to get more intense than the last one to get the better hit. And so what happens is that what we see in pornography becomes increased in its intensity. And so what was pornography 20 years ago is not pornography today. Because your brain says, I need more. It needs to be different, it needs to be more intense. And so now there are numerous studies and statistics that'll show us the increased level of violence that takes place in pornographic material, the increased uh, allure towards child pornography because your brain is saying, I need more, I need more, I need something different. The pornography industry knows that. And that's how they keep us coming back. And so what does that do? It warps entirely our view of sex. And so now you see this broken manifestation of it across the board. Even if you're not watching pornography, it's in movies, it's in TV shows, it's everywhere. And that leads us to another problem, right, which is the idolization of sex, which is how we also get misled, right? Because now we become so obsessed with it, we believe that it is this ultimate experience that we should have. And I'm so infused with these images that I'm gonna do anything I can to get that experience. And so culture will say, okay, I'm, I'm owed this. It's an inalienable right for me to have this experience and I cannot be denied it no matter how I want to experience. And even if culture stands in the way, some people idolize it so much that they will go to the point of harming another person to get it. Sexual assault, sexual abuse, It's an idol, right? And so we see that in culture, but we idolize it in the church. We just talk about it differently, right? See, we know all this happens in culture and around us, and so we start to have this same sort of view of sex, be it secretly or or a little bit more publicly, whatever it is. But we kind of have this belief, right, that it's it's so important. This this is such an experience that we need to have. But gosh, we're in the church. We can't really affirm that, so what do we say? Sex is only in one place. Where do we find sex? We find it in marriage. So what do we idolize? Not sex, marriage. And we make marriage ultimate. Right? We talk about it in certain ways because we're fearful, right, that you're going to find it in some other ways. So you better get married and you've got to have all these things, and this is what marriage is going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. All these different things. We idolize marriage, and guess what? Marriage ends up disappointing us <laughs> because we bring in these warped views and baggage of what it really isn't. And we have a warped view of what relationships are supposed to be and what intimacy really is supposed to be, what love really is. We ostracize people that are single, make them feel less than because they're not married, completely forgetting the fact that Jesus never married, Paul never married, right? That the Bible teaches a whole lot about intimacy and love that has nothing to do with sex and marriage, Intimacy that is found in friendship. Intimacy that is found in service and holding hands and touching the leper. All these different things that show us what true intimacy and love is really found. In fact, Jesus himself defines what the greatest love is and has nothing to do with marriage and nothing to do with sex. What does he say? John 15, greater love has no one than this than what? He who lays down his life for his friends. That's love. That's intimacy, right? But marriage can't sustain it, right? We idolize it. And so then our marriages break down, right? We come in and we're unhappy. So it leads to other problems, like adultery. 30 to 40% of Americans will cheat on their partner, according to Pew Research, right? And the reason people get drawn into adultery are these unmet expectations, right? You have men that, again, are driven by unrealistic sexual impulses. Women oftentimes cite neglect. Either way, it's this relationship that's not meeting these needs that we think we want because it's been idolized. So we lack accountability, we lack all these things, and it leads us to infidelity, leads to divorce. And so the, the response is not to shame people for divorce and to shame people for adultery and to further idolize marriage and all these other things. The, the real answer is to speak more holistically about what love is, what intimacy is, and how it is found Perfectly in Jesus. That's the answer. Right? You don't bring in all these weights and these expectations on a marriage and a spouse that it cannot sustain. That's how you get led astray. Okay? Now, there's another one that we have to talk about today that's the most difficult. Right? We've got to talk about homosexuality and gender identity. And it's the most difficult because this is where it typically is the conversation that is the most volatile. It's where you see the most fight and flight. And so I want to be very sensitive and careful with how we have this conversation. I'm willing to bet, even just me mentioning the subject matter, that for some of you in here, as soon as you heard me say the words homosexuality and gender identity, you got nervous. What's he going to say? Is he really going to go there? What if I disagree with him, right? And then you can kind of feel like, depending on your experiences and how you feel about this, maybe you're already defensive, already angry, you're already ready to fight in case I don't agree with you or you hear something you don't agree with. Maybe some of you are sitting in there and you're going, all right, if he says the wrong thing, I'm out. I have to leave his church. I can't be in a church that doesn't agree with this. Some of you are sitting there going, why is he even talking about this? So divisive, why even bring it up? Just leave it alone. Guarantee you, some of you have had those thoughts within the last few minutes. And all those are indicators of fight and flight. And we're saying that because we're fearful. Because it is a hard conversation. People have been wounded by it. We have loved ones, family members. I do. They think differently, believe differently on this. But love is willing to have hard conversations, not avoidable. And the other reason I think this is important, because in all the manifestations of sexual immorality that we see in our culture today, I could make an argument that this is the one that most closely correlates to what we see in Revelation chapter two, because we've seen a shift within the church. And there's a movement now that would say the Bible affirms homosexuality. There are church leaders, denominations, churches, and droves that would say that. And, and that creates this really interesting dynamic where now you have congregations where there are folks that believe it, those that tolerate it, those that resist it. So It feels very similar. And so we need to have this conversation to really understand how, how do we make that conclusion. And it's slightly different than what we've already talked about. Because even though we struggle <clears throat> with those other issues, right, and we can be misled in those other issues, you typically don't have many churches, denominations, pastors saying, you know what, I think the Bible actually teaches adultery is okay. But we are having that on these issues. So it merits thoughtful consideration. It, it merits a longer sermon. How is that happening? Let's really understand it. And that's, that's what I want to try to do for a moment. And, and so the, the, the way that I would approach this conversation is to say that typically when you have this question of how do we say that now the Bible affirms homosexuality is to make sure that we really have some important qualifications when you engage this conversation because it's so pervasive, right? Um, the first is to say, well, what arena are we talking about this within? Because when you have the issue of homosexuality and gender identity come up, it it is absolutely one that is charged with political implications, right? What the government defines as marriage, what rights people have, all these different things that are constantly a part of our regular culture. Um, That's not what we're talking about this morning. I have no interest in talking about it from a political American cultural point of view. I'm not going to tell you what I think the government should do, what the Supreme Court should do. That is not my job. I'm not your congressman, I'm not a Supreme Court justice. I'm your pastor. So my responsibility is to say, let's talk about it in this arena. What does the Bible say? Let's just answer that question. What does the Bible say? And if we live in an era where I know you all are exposed to this narrative that some people are saying the Bible says this and others say the Bible says this, then we need to have this conversation. And so what does the Bible say? Well, here's here's how I would argue people could potentially be misled to thinking that the Bible would affirm homosexuality in these questions of gender identity. And and this comes after years of reading different articles, different research, different books. I found um, a blog post on the Human Rights Campaign website that I thought summarized it really well. Um, and so I'm kind of drawing from some of what they present, but also just the years of that sort of reading. And here's what is, is typically presented uh, as an argument for how the Bible could affirm homosexuality. Right? First is the question of interpretation who gets to decide what the Bible says? How do I know it's not just your interpretation? Right, it's, a, it's a good question. Clearly, there's not just one interpretation of the Bible. That's why we have different denominations, different forms of church governance, different ways to do worship, right? A lot of people read the Bible and walk away with different interpretations. We know that there's a consistent interpretation about Jesus and who he is that transcends time and generations, but a lot of other different views in terms of how the Bible is pursued in practice. And I think that's what actually gives the Bible strength. I don't think it's a weakness. I think that's what allows it to uh, endure different generations, different societies, and transcend culture and time. It has a certain flexibility to it, and that should be celebrated. But there is a level of best practices. There are levels of best practices that we can apply in pursuing biblical interpretation. What are some of those things? Very briefly, prayer, being led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus. He is the lens through which all Scripture should be interpreted. There, There are exegetical methods. I'm giving you that word to prove that I actually went to seminary. Right? Like, but seriously, there's an expertise with this. Right? Like, you, you, you go to get school on how to study Greek and Hebrew, how to understand grammar, syntax, historical context, word studies, variations in different manuscripts. Like, that takes a lot of research to be able to see what has been said historically from one generation to the next, what scholars say, how to research those scholars. That takes a lot of work. I do that every week. Right? That's an avenue towards faithful interpretation. Faithful interpretation takes into account history. Absolutely, there have been times in history where the church has, has missed and misinterpreted parts of Scripture. And what typically course corrects us in history is Scripture. right? So you could take the Jews and the Gentiles. right? For generations, the Jews thought the Gentiles had no part of it, and all of a sudden, Cornelius happens and they're like, what's going on? And they get together and they make a decision. And what they discover is what Scripture had said, and they go back to Genesis and the story of Abraham and see who's going to be a blessing to all nations. They look at the Psalms and the prophets and this constant refrain that it's in Scripture, and it's Scripture that helps correct us in our interpretation. It's also community. I think this is really the core of why this question is presented, is because it's really borrowing the secularism and individualism that we find in our society, right? The way it's presented in society is, you have your truth, I have mine. And so, That's what society tells us. And so we borrow it and we bring it into the church and we just cloak it in Christianity and say, well, that's just your interpretation. And if we believe that I can just have my own personal biblical interpretation, then I can make the Bible say whatever I want. If I just get to define it in isolation, I can do whatever I want with the scripture. But historically, the Bible has found solid interpretation through community: Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Should we have the Gentiles follow all the Judaic laws? I don't know. Let's get together. Right, it's tested out in community through history. Right, so there are best practices to how we interpret Scripture. Okay? And so when people just say, well, that's just your interpretation, well, I just want you to know this is not just my interpretation. This is built upon practices of interpretation, history of interpretation. And the responsibility to know how to accurately interpret the Bible is not just mine, it's yours. You should never just take what I say for its word. Measure it against Scripture. Follow these same guidelines and practices to the best of your extent. What does the Bible say? And so here's the overarching narrative that we hear today for churches and leaders that would say the Bible affirms homosexuality. One of the main things that is, is presented is that the homosexuality that we see today is different than the homosexuality that was discussed in the Bible. Now that's, that's the premise, and it's applied to almost all of the texts that are used in the Scripture. And, and so here's Here's the idea, right, that the homosexuality today is about monogamous same-sex marriage, fidelity, love, faithfulness. The homosexuality in, in historically biblical times was about dominance, right, M- males that would uh, exploit young male slaves. I mean, it was different. It wasn't about monogamous relationships. The, the problem with that presentation and that argument is kind of multifaceted. On one level, it's problematic because it takes us out of the Bible into history. And now we're trying to interpret history. And let me just go ahead and save you time. It's inconclusive. You can absolutely go find historians that would say, yeah, there was no such thing as monogamous same-sex relationships in biblical times. You can also find a lot of historians that would say, yes, there are. Okay. Uh, To me, it doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant, because the real question behind it is not, is the homosexuality the same, but really, does the Bible define monogamous marital relationships? And that, to me, is absolutely yes. And we find it in Genesis 2. At the very beginning, creation, male and female, for this reason, they will leave mother and father, be joined together as one flesh, which is a reference to that intimacy of sex, and become as one. Right? Now, you see subsequent arguments. Well, that was just the beginning. That's how it began. Marriage evolves. Right? Genesis wasn't intended to capture all the different depictions of marriage. Right? There are new ways to do this now. But again, that's inconsistent with what you see in the Scripture because it is continually defined even into the New Testament, which leads to another discussion oftentimes about what does the Bible say about homosexuality. A lot of times you'll hear, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. So why are we making such a big deal about it? He never even taught about it. If, like, if he cared so much about it, he would have spoken out against it. That's problematic on a couple of levels as well. Right, the first is because it's a very dangerous way to determine our ethics. <laughs> to say that if Jesus didn't explicitly speak against something, it means it's okay. Do you know how many things Jesus didn't explicitly condemn? Can, can, I mean, rape. There's no verse where he condemns rape. What about genocide? Torturing little puppies. It's a very dangerous way to develop our ethics. Right? And the other problem with it is that he does actually speak about it when he's asked about divorce. Right? Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, questions about divorce, and what does Jesus do? He defines monogamous relationships by referring back to Genesis 2 quoting it saying, this is God's design. That is him speaking on it. He doesn't have to mention it directly. To expect him to mention it directly is is a little unrealistic and unfair to Jesus, because that's not how we have conversations. That's not how we define things. If somebody asks you to define something, you don't define it by listing everything that it's not, right? So, like, if you come up and say, hey, Jeremiah, what's baseball? I'm not going to say, well, it's not football, it's not basketball, it's not soccer, it's not, like, I'm going to say, well, it's this. So, regardless of what history says existed when and where, the Bible is very clear, this is what monogamous relationship is to look like. Now, those that are going to say that the Bible affirms homosexuality know that there's additional work to do, because there are other passages that reference it. But the the theory, the Kind of thinking is more or less the same. That these additional passages are talking about something else. The point to references in the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and say, you know, that's not really about homosexuality. It's about violence, it's about oppression towards neighbors. And you're right, it is about violence, it is about oppression towards neighbor, but it is also about sexuality. Just because it has other things doesn't mean we dismiss these others. But we're not really building the framework of this question of sexual immorality based on Old Testament laws. Right? You can read Leviticus, but there are a lot of things in Leviticus that none of us follow, like shaving our sideburns, right? But what we find is that faithful biblical interpretation reveals that there are numerous things in the New Testament that goes back and affirms what is written in the Old Testament to say this is something you should continue. And you see traces of that. So when you get to the New Testament, there are references to homosexuality. A couple that are often referenced in a list of vices, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy, right, and so here's the way that that often is explained for those that are going to say the Bible affirms it. Well, the terms that are used in 1 Corinthians 6, they're really just speaking to the dominant partner, right? This was that exploitation. This is pedestry. This is this idea of this dominant male exploiting a younger male slave, and that's not the same thing. The problem with that, again, is that if you actually read the Greek, the term for the dominant partner is in there as well as the weaker partner. And that term actually draws you back to Leviticus. (laughs) And so the message of 1 Corinthians 6 is not, oh, this is just for one dominant sort of view or figure. This is about the act itself, right? It's spoken against. It's in the Greek. You also struggle with not just 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy, but Romans 1. The other reason that's a hard thing to sustain is because Romans 1 talks about women who were never really in positions of authority and dominance, never really had the opportunity to exploit people, and Romans, again, condemns it. Romans is actually really interesting. To me, it's the most important one because it anchors it in idolatry, right? It anchors it in this this conversation where, where Romans 1 says, listen, here's what's going on with the human condition. This is incredibly important, right? God has made himself known to us through nature, Through creation, his divine qualities, his eternal power have been clearly portrayed by what has been made so that we are without excuse. But the problem with the human heart is we neither give thanks to God nor do we glorify him. Instead, we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. And we exchange the glory of an immortal God for created things. And Paul is trying to get us to see how that happens. He's given us examples and his language is very intentional. And one of the first examples he says is the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. The men exchanged natural for unnatural and were inflamed with lust for one another. The point is that it's anchored in idolatry. He's saying this is one of the greatest examples that the glory of God is seen in how he created, and we exchange it for something that we then have created. So to take that premise and apply it to the Scripture forces us to eliminate almost all the key words, all the terminology, and ignore the context. It's not sound biblical interpretation. Even if none of that was an issue, there's still another problem to shift our understanding of sex and marriage after thousands of years of faithful interpretation. When you see those shifts in interpretation in church history, you have other verses that affirm it, like I referenced with the Jews and the Gentiles. Slavery, the abolition of slavery, right? It's There's neither slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in this way. Lay down your life, hear your friends, all these things that create a new and better interpretation There is not one single verse in the Scripture that affirms it. Not one. The only way to arrive at that conclusion is to try to explain away all the things that are already in there, and that doesn't align with sound biblical interpretation. So listen, hear me. Please hear me. I'm not trying to say that homosexuality is is the worst sin the gravest sin no we're not talking about severity of sinfulness it's not at play here what has shifted within christendom is voices that have arisen have said it's not a sin and our response to that statement has to be Well, what does the bible say and so can i just follow just a few more things here and i know we're running late i'm gonna do my best the other thing that happens that makes this so difficult is because the church has reacted so poorly to this conversation. Right? The other narrative is that you find these references to these scriptures that say, um, a good tree will not produce bad fruit. And when you look at the church's response towards this issue, it has created bad fruit. Because people that have same-sex attract- attraction have been ostracized, been discriminated against, have been abused, have been killed. Have been bullied, have been vilified. And that's what creates a lot of the fear, right? Jeremiah, if you talk about this, you're gonna hurt people again. And can I just say you're right, that is bad fruit that should never come from the church, ever. And can I just say that if you or a loved one has been victimized in that way, I am sorry. And to the extent that I can, I repent on behalf of the church because it should never happen. But those actions are rooted in fear, not in love. And just because that bad fruit has taken place doesn't give us the opportunity to redefine what is clearly defined in Scripture. And so let me just boil this down for you, right? If you say, this is how... I have these impulses, I have these desires. Surely God gave me those for a reason. Listen, he gave all of us impulses and desires we're called to surrender. And so let me just spell it out for you, right? If, if you're asking, hey, can, can I be homosexual and be a part of this church? Yes. Can I be greedy and struggle with wanting to give to the poor and be a part of this church? Yes. Can I struggle with gossip, slander, and lying? What if I'm a thief? What if I'm a murderer? Can I come here and be a part of this church? Yes, absolutely. Because this is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for broken people. And we're going to love all of you that want to be a part of it. But if you come to me and you say, Jeremiah, what does the Bible say about greed? What does it say about gossip? What does it say about lying and stealing? What does it say about sexuality? I'm going to be honest with you because I love you. And I'm willing to have those hard conversations. I wanna quickly address gender identity and then we'll, we'll be done. I know, we're going long, but we're here. The challenge with gender identity that is also pervasive in our culture is that essentially it is saying that there's a disconnect between the physical world and the spiritual world. Right? The, the, the way that we are seeing this teaching of sexuality, right? and it's important to understand that sex is more than just what we do with a spouse. It's our identity, male and female. And what is being taught today is that there's a distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world right, that your biological sex is what you see physically, but your gender identity is what you know psychologically. It's what's going on in your mind. That's problematic for a couple of reasons, right? The first is, again, logical. If we're going to define our identities just psychologically in what we think in our mind, why is it only allowed to be done so with gender? There are a lot of ways that we create our identities, right? So we define ourselves and our identities based on our race, based on our age, Based on our culture. And so if the physical world doesn't matter in shaping our identity, then I psychologically can change my race, I can change my age, I can change my culture. Why is it only applied to gender? It seems to be untenable when we invoke that. But it also goes against what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach that there is a physical world and a spiritual world? Absolutely. But not that they're disconnected, they are fused together holistically. This is why Jesus was fully human and fully divine, because he came not to just claim your soul. He came to claim all of you, right? To set all of you free, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, to set creation free, to give us the hope of a new heaven and new earth. And so when we create this disconnect, we undermine the gospel. This is one of the first early teachings that threatened the church. It was known as Gnosticism, Gnosticism taught the same disconnect, and the conclusion was that therefore then Jesus, if he was truly divine, was not actually human. If he was actually human, he was never fully divine, despite the fact that Colossians says the fullness of the deity existed in bodily form in Jesus. So when we invoke this belief, it undermines what Jesus has done. If the physical world doesn't matter, he didn't need to be fully human and die on the cross. Right, he came to redeem all of it and what does the psalmist say you were fearfully and wonderfully made that's the truth you are fearfully and wonderfully made just as you are there's a lot more that i could say about that but for the sake of time i'm going to have to transition out of that here's my heart at the core of this what we're struggling with is the impulse of the sinful nature. It was the same challenge in the garden, which was what? A challenge in the garden was, I wanna know right and wrong for myself, the knowledge of good and evil for myself, rather than submit to what God has established. And it's idolatry, it's the impulse of the human heart. And we have to surrender it. But we have to do so no longer clinging to fear of what that surrender might mean to us. But rather than having it be anchored in fear, anchor it in love. Right? Because what we see when we make that transition and to really operate out of love rather than fear is that we have the opportunity to be known for something different, and this is where the church has to do a better job. Right? What was Thyatira known for? There were some there that tolerated this teaching, some that followed it. But those that resisted it, what were they known for? They were known for their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance. That's what we need to be known for. And that means even to the point of being willing to have hard conversations. Because here's what happens. The Lord searches our hearts and he knows us. And he sees you for who you are. And when we embrace that, that's where we find perfect love. We discover that perfect love is not found in marriage. It's not found in identity. It's not found in sex. It's found only in Jesus. And when he searches you and he knows you and he sees all your broken pieces and he loves you anyway to the point of dying for you, we see that this is incredible grace that leads us home and what is it that leads us to that change what is it that leads us to repent as he is calling this church to repent is it fear is it judgment according to Romans 2 it's his kindness it's his love it's his grace it's his mercy that's what leads us to change he searches you he knows you he sees you for exactly who you are and he Loves you. And that's exactly how we should treat others. And so let us make the commitment to confess our own brokenness, our own failings to one another, and to come together and encourage one another, not out of fear, but out of the perfect love of Jesus. And be known for that love and share it with others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. And we confess this is a a difficult subject and a difficult conversation. A lot more that can be said, a lot more that needs to be addressed, but we entrust it to you and to your spirit. I thank you for a church that's willing to listen. Father, I submit that anything that we've discussed today that is not of you, Father, that you would help us to submit those things, confess those things, and once again be undone by your love rather than our fears. Help us to know what it looks like as a church to be committed to your grace and to be undone by the fact that you see us for all of our brokenness and you extend that grace to us through the riches of your love. And you lead us. God is perfect people but as sinners. Would you lead us home? And for that, Father, we're grateful. We love you, God. And we pray all these things. In the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.